Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We are back in the book of Galatians this morning, chapter 5, at the end of the chapter. We just read in our service a few minutes ago, verses 22 through 26, my text for this morning. And of course, this is on the fruit of the Spirit. It's been a couple weeks since we were here in this chapter, so last week you'll remember that we were from verse 19 to 21 on the works of the flesh. Today we're going to talk about something a little better, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. Let me put them in a context like this. You know, we, we live in a country under a constitution. Everybody that lives in a country does, and so we have laws that we're expected to keep. And uh, this constitution that we're under tells us what we can and can't do legally, of course. There are punishments even for not obeying those laws. There are large things, of course, that would be very serious, invasion, murder, mayhem, terrorism, things like that. But then, then there are lesser laws that we're expected to keep. You've got to pay your taxes or you'll pay some price for that. Uh, you may leave church today and go over the speed limit and get pulled over and have to pay a ticket. There are those kinds of laws. Uh, laws of stealing, laws of contracts and breaking contracts and things like that. We, we're used to living uh, under constitutional things and laws and things we have to obey, uh, things that we're supposed to stay away from, things that we're supposed to do. Well, you know, when we read the Bible, it's not so much different. As a matter of fact, uh, we say in this country that basically we kind of take our concept of law from the Scripture anyway. We believe that there's a lawgiver, and that's God himself. And so God has made a constitution for us, too, as believers in Jesus Christ. And that constitution, if you will, is called the Word of God. It's what God has written. And in this book... Uh, he tells us many things we should not do and many things that we should do. And what we have read in Galatians chapter 5 are some of those things. A long list of things we should not do, 19 to 21. But we're looking at some things now that we should do, we ought to do. And uh, there, are, there are large things uh, and there are smaller things, it seems like. But just like under any constitution, anything that we're obligated to, we should try to keep those. And that's what we're going to look at in verses 22. And, and actually, just in a, in a short verse and a half, 22 and a half of verse 23, we have nine items, if you will, that he chooses to tell us about called the fruit of the Spirit. Before we get to those nine, and we'll go through each of them in a little bit, let me give you seven thoughts I have about these fruits of the Spirit that I think we as believers ought to kind of keep in mind as we think about these. First of all, the thing to notice is that fruit is a singular word, whereas up before, works of the flesh is a plural word. So works of the flesh is different than fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is looked at as one thing. As a matter of fact, I'll say in a minute, we have all of these things working inside us to one degree or another. You know, if you get a fruit basket, you use the singular, right? But inside that basket, there's a lot of different kinds of fruit, but it's a fruit basket. And here's 
a fruit basket, if you will, fruit of the Spirit that all comes together. All of these things are important to each and every one of us. Secondly, the believer obviously produces this fruit through the Spirit of God and through the Lord Jesus Christ even. And so without the Spirit of God, these things will not be produced in a person's life. This is for the believer. A believer is supposed to do this. So even Jesus said, remember in John 15, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we have the Holy Spirit in us. We abide in Jesus as the vine. We can produce this fruit. Thirdly, these are all internal things that come out. As a matter of fact, I'm going to outline these as you see in your outline. There are inward fruit, there's outward fruit, but it all begins inwardly. It begins with that work of the Spirit inside us who creates in us this desire and the ability to work out this fruit, and it works out in our lives. Thirdly, or fourthly, I mean, all of these words, these nine words, can be imperatives in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, at some place in the New Testament, all of these are commanded of us. Here, they're just descriptions of things, nouns that we have, words, but somewhere in the New Testament, this is commanded of us to do. So it's not something we say, well, I don't like this one, but I like this one. No, all of these are fruit of the Spirit, and we should be producing them in our lives. Fifthly, there are many more fruits, if you will, than just these nine. So they are kind of examples on the one hand, maybe headings on another hand. But consider Ephesians 5, 9, which says, The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness. We have that word in our list. But then he says, righteousness and truth. And so here's righteousness and truth also are fruits of the Spirit, not in this list that we have. Uh, in other words, there's a lot of fruit of the Spirit. Our, our fruit basket's a pretty big basket, and the Holy Spirit desires to, to produce in us many different things. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. There's two more fruit of our lips and giving thanks that aren't mentioned in, in this list here. Number six, these are all in the believer to some degree. In other words, you, you have these nine things working in you to some degree. It may be that some of them are such a low degree that they haven't come out like they should come out in your life. And you need to zero in on those and say, I need to do better in that area. And there might be others that just boil over in your life and praise the Lord for it. But since the Holy Spirit is in you and you have the word of God, he's, he's producing these fruits to some degree in your life. You have them all to, to some degree. And then lastly, number seven, all of these things testify to the faith of a believer. Since you have to have the Holy Spirit in you and be a believer to, eat, to even produce these fruits, they show that you are a believer. 
And, and you remember in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus said these words, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And then he says, Therefore, by their fruits you shall know them. How often have you quoted that verse? By their fruits you'll know them. And so we, other people who look at us know that we're a believer when we produce this fruit of the Spirit that comes to us. Now, Remember up above, especially in verse 17, I talked about in last, the last message how the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are like a teeter-totter, and they push down against one another. Verse 17 says, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another so that you cannot do the things that you would. We're in this battle between the works of the flesh. You also have the flesh. You're born with that flesh. It is, your, it is your old nature. And so you have the ability to do those works of the flesh also. So the Holy Spirit is working against those things to produce the fruit of the Spirit in you. Robert Gromacki was a, a good Baptist theologian that I like to read often. He said this, listen, works have their source in self, whereas fruit originates in the Spirit. Works manifest what a person does, whereas fruit declares what a man is. Works show conduct, but fruit reveals character. In works, the emphasis is on doing, but in fruit, the stress is on being. And so this is who we are. This is what a, what a Christian is. You know, there's a verse in 1 Timothy that says, the law is not made for a righteous man. You know, if everyone were righteous and everyone following all the fruits of the Spirit, we wouldn't even need any laws in this country. But you know why we need them? Because people don't have the Spirit. But it ought to be in us that we don't need a law. These things are produced and they live out in us. As a matter of fact, uh, look down at verse 23. At the, when he gets done with this list, the, the next thing he will say is, against such there is no law. No, no one would make laws to keep you from doing the fruits of the Spirit. Oh, please don't love anybody. Please don't have, be a faithful person. We don't need laws for that. And so the law is not made for a righteous man. Uh, these things ought to be part of us, and it is who we are. When you look in a, a spiritual mirror, which is the Word of God, these are the things that you ought to see in yourself. You ought to see these things produced in you. Here's an interesting uh, trivia, if you will. Nine words, that's, and sometimes these words have different forms, you know. So you have love here is the first word, but in the Bible it could be loving, it could be loved in the past tense, it could be even be like beloved. And so all of these words have various different forms. But when you put all those together, even in the New Testament alone, these nine words will be seen over a thousand times. Isn't that amazing? A thousand times the fruits of the Spirit ought to be seen in the believer in, in the New Testament alone. It's an amazing thing, and I'm going to remind you of that as we go through. So let's look at this list, if you will. And again, notice uh, how I divide it. Uh, 
they're not really divided in the scripture itself, so we may look, maybe we don't need to divide them, but I'm just doing it this way to kind of make it easier to think about. First of all, I want to think of these three inward fruits, love, joy, and peace. Love and faith, mentioned a little later in the list, are the two most common words. Love, from the word agape, will appear over 350 times in the New Testament, and so will the word faith. So they are, they are used much more than any other word. And you know what the word love comes from, don't you? It's that agape. We, we say that word a lot, agape love. It's interesting that here in this list it comes first as kind of the the first and foremost kind of characteristic that ought to be in your life. We know that we've passed from death unto life when we love the brethren. Peter has a list in 2 Peter chapter 1, and love comes last. It's kind of an interesting thought. In one list it comes first, and in another list it comes last. I think maybe for this reason. Here in this list, it's the first thing that comes into our life. God so loved the world, we love. God loved, uh, first loved us, and we love him. In Peter's list, it's more like it's the culmination of a, a measure of maturity. When you start out uh, just with the, with the first things in your life, we learn how to love as we go through our lives. And really, when you think about it, isn't that true? Uh, we, we can love kind of superficially at first, but as we go throughout our lives, we learn how to love. So notice a couple things in verse 14, by the way. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You want to fulfill all those Old Testament commands and all of those things that are in all of those Old Testament books? Love one another is the fulfillment of that kind of law. Not only that, Love gives us assurance. We find in the book of 1 John, for example, knowing this, that the law is not made, or excuse me, not made for righteous man. In 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life when we love the brethren. How do you know that you have eternal life living within you? You love Christianity. You love the brethren. You love the Christian faith. It is you now. It's part of your life. And so we know that. And without love, the Bible says, we are nothing. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 1? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. Just words without true love. C.S. Lewis has a book called The Four Loves that he wrote many years ago. And uh, he reminds us that in the New Testament, there are three other kinds of love besides agape love. And he called agape love the gardener in the garden. You know, another kind of love is the phileo love. That's the friendship. You have friendship. Uh, another kind of love is the eros love, which means the falling in love type of love. And then uh, there is the family love. The storge love is brother or sister, or husband and wife, and uh, parents and children and so forth. But Lewis said all of those things can grow weeds without a gardener. And it's the agape love of God that is the gardener in our life over all other kinds of love. 
Love and a marriage can go awry. Love and families can go awry. Love between lovers can and all of that. But with agape love that produces the fruit of the Spirit, then those things are kept in check in our lives, and we need this agape love. So the first word is, is love. The second word is joy. It's also very common, uh, 70 times in the New Testament also. Joy is an inward happiness. It's an inward happiness about being saved. L listen to what Jesus said again in John 15, 11. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. It's not necessarily a joy that comes from you. It's a joy that comes from the Lord, that my joy might be in you. And so we have that, that joy of the Lord Jesus Christ inside us. I love this expression in 1 Peter 1.8. Whom having not seen, that is the Lord, you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing, Peter will say, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Remember that? Joy unspeakable so deep you can't express it. The, the joy that Jesus Christ gave you uh, makes you happy. And why are we happy as Christians? I'll tell you, for me, number one, our sins are forgiven. They're not going to be held against us. Uh, we don't have to suffer eternal punishment because our sins are forgiven. We have eternal life with God in heaven one day. Our anger is gone toward this world and toward others and even toward God. And life has a meaning. Back to that verse again, that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. And with that thought, let me go to the third word, and that is the word peace, because we have a similar statement about peace, joy and peace. Over a hundred times, the word peace uh, appears in our New Testament. And I love this verse in John 14. You'll remember it. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, I give to you, but let, your, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now let me go back to that and, and emphasize it again. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. He said, my joy I give to you, and now he says, my peace I give to you. You know, we have that divine kind of peace inside us. It's not that we don't have trouble in our life. It's not that we don't go through trials in our life. We do, of course, don't we? But we go through those trials with the peace of God that passes all understanding. And it's not our kind of peace. It's the peace that was in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That kind of peace uh, is, is part of us and, and lives inside us. Philippians says, the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts that you are called in one body and be thankful. So this peace of God, this inward peace through trials. I tell you folks, one of the, one of the blessings of, of being a pastor is that I... I now and then get to visit people going through trials. And it's, it's kind of a unique thing because 
you can see a lot of different attitudes toward people with trial. But boy, when you see someone who loves the Lord going through a trial. Well, just, just this last couple of weeks, here was our sister Jean. And she falls off a ladder and breaks a couple ribs and a shoulder blade and some other things. And, she, and she's in a hospital at 93 years old. And uh, you go see her in the hospital. And you know what she says? God has me here for a purpose. I, I hope that I'm learning what that purpose is. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it great to see, some, see the joy of the Lord, not as the world gives, but as somebody gives? And here was our brother Calvin lying there with the whiskers on his face and the sheet pulled up to his chin in a hospital, uh, so weak that he can hardly get out of bed. And uh, he just said, I'm doing fine, Pastor. And some of you who have lost loved ones, some of you who have been down on your back for a long time, uh, that, that peace that only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ comes to you. Praise the Lord for that. So, love, joy, peace, I call inner fruit, inward. Uh, they all come out from inward, but those three are so important to us. But then some of them work their way out. So I call it outward fruit, long-suffering, kindness, and goodness. So let me camp on, on these for a few minutes. Long-suffering, macrothumia, taking the long look, you, we might say. It's the, it's the opposite of lust, which is the short look, epithumia. Macrothumia means I take the long look down the road. I have a, a long desire for things. In the book of James, James used this word in chapter 5 uh, a number of times just within a few sentences, although we have it translated in our English usually with the word patience. It's kind of interesting. There's a word for patience that's not, not in this list, but hupamene, remember that, that ability to remain under the load is that kind of patience. But macrothumia is a type of patience also, and often is translated that way. Let me read it to you in James. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Or let me insert our word. Therefore, be long-suffering, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Look ahead to the time the Lord is going to come and remain under the load till you get there. Then he says, remember how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently or with long-suffering for it until it receives the early and latter rain. A farmer doesn't just put the seed in the ground and go back out tomorrow and expect a harvest, does he? He knows that it takes time, so he looks down the road. And so James is using that as the illustration. Just as he has to have that long-suffering, that long look, so do you. And, then, and so he will say, be you also patient or long-suffering. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And so we're waiting for the Lord, aren't we? In one way, the church of Jesus Christ has been waiting for the Lord for 2,000 years. And yet, we still today uh, are waiting with long-suffering for Him to come. If you've raised children, you know what long-suffering is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it, it takes a lot of years to raise a kid, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, as wonderful as they are, when they come into our arms, we have a family in our church that experienced that this week, yet it's the beginning 
of a long process. And we have to look way down the road and say, what kind of a, an adult do I want this little baby to be one day? And then I'm going to work over all of these years to try to make that little life what I want it to be way down the road. You know, God is long-suffering in this age of grace. You remember those words? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't the Lord come? Because he desires more people to repent of their sins and become believers, that's why. And he's giving them time to do it. Or 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, For this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first... Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him to life everlasting. His life is a pattern that no matter how bad a person is, they can be saved. No matter how wicked they are, the grace of God can still reach. And the Lord is long-suffering for people like that, that he would come to, to the Lord. And so... God is long-suffering. We should be long-suffering. I sometimes think, think of it like this. You, you are walking along, and there's a trial in front of you. Maybe it's a, an illness. Maybe it's a tragedy. Maybe it's something happening in your family. Maybe, you know, whatever it could be. And this trial is in front of you, and you're saying to yourself, oh, I just hate to walk through this trial. I don't like this kind of thing. I wish this never, you know, and you're thinking about that. I think long-suffering is project yourself beyond this trial. Is it going to be a week uh, of doing some hard thing? Is it going to be a few months of going through some pain and suffering, maybe a whole year out of your life? Uh, what is it? Project yourself beyond it and picture yourself standing there and looking back at that trial saying, that wasn't so bad, <laughs> or looking at it and saying, thank you, Lord, for bringing me through that. Thank you for teaching me those things that I needed to learn. I think that's long-suffering, taking the long look, looking down there at where God's going to bring you when he teaches you this lesson and brings you through that trial. So long-suffering. Secondly, kindness in the New King James and in the Old is gentleness. And you'll notice that uh, under the forward fruit, we have gentleness again with the word meekness. So understand that it's okay, English translators, these words are sometimes very similar to one another, and then, you know, they'll choose one English word for this or another English word for that, so don't be bothered by that. It's just a description of what that, that Greek word is. Christos is this word for kindness. Seventeen times in the New Testament this word appears. It's an act of kindness toward somebody else. A kind of a gentleness, a kindness toward someone else. Titus uh, 3, 4 says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, so God, God gave his kindness to us. It appeared to us. We're to show that kindness to others. If I understand this little historical example, I, I think it is true, I've read it, that Christos is one letter different than Christos. So the word for anointed, Christ, Jesus is Christ because he's the anointed one. That's Christos. 
but Christos means kindness or gentleness. And in the early years of Christianity, they used it as a derogatory term because Christians were kind and Christians were gentle. And it wasn't a kind or gentle world in the Roman world and the Greek world. And so here are these Christians who would not strike back, who would not argue back, who would not call names back. And they were called, oh, well, you're a Christian. <laughs> kind of a takeoff on the word Christ, but with that twist in it to mean kind of kindness. You know, we will talk, we will say the same thing about meekness, you know, that it's a very difficult thing, really, for a person with the human nature to display is meekness. And the same, the same with this. Now, I want to, before we leave this word, I want to remind you of a verse in James 3.17 that I, I've preached from before. I want to remind you of something. He says, the wisdom from above. There's a wisdom that comes from above, and it comes in a certain order. Is first pure, then peaceable, and then we have our word, then gentle. And there our word, Christos, is translated gentle and easy to be entreated. Remember those, those words? The wisdom that is from above. How do we get that gentleness? How do we get kindness uh, uh, in our lives? Number one, it's first pure. Be holy, for I am holy, God said. You know, start out with, with this purity in your life. When a person practices that purity, then the second word is, peaceableness comes into his life. Peace like a river, sometimes we sing. Purity produces peaceableness. You're not at odds with anybody. You're not struggling over the things of this world. The purity that you have before God causes peacefulness. The third word is gentleness, because out of that kind of person comes gentleness. Purity peaceable, and now gentleness. If you know a truly gentle person or a kind person, then that gentleness and kindness has come out of peaceableness, which has come out of purity. Now, it can be pretended and it can be, uh, you know, not real, but we're talking about what is real. But you know what the fourth word in that list is? Easy to be entreated. I like the old version there. Easy to be entreated. If you know a truly kind or gentle person, that person is very easy to approach, very easy to go to and say, can I ask you something? What is your opinion about this? Could you help me with something? That kind of a person is easy to be entreated because they're gentle, and they're gentle because they live a peaceable life, and they're peaceable because they live a pure life. That's what James is saying in this progression of words in James 3.17. Let me ask you this. How often are you entreated then? Do people come to you and say, I want to know what you think. I want to ask you something. Could I ask you to help me in some way? And so kindness or gentleness, uh, take it as a, a wonderful, godly fruit that's in our fruit basket, if you will. Then goodness. Uh, sixthly, this word goodness, agathos, good, 125 times in the New Testament. God is good. 
Barnabas was a good man. Remember that? He, uh, the, he was uh, complimented for, for that. There's a verse in Psalm 37 that says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. The steps of a good man or woman, of course, a good person, ordered by the Lord. A good man, a good person is somebody who says, Lord, what would you have me to do? What is your will for my life? What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in my life? Show me what that is. That's where I will go. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean they're easy, but it means it's the best course. The steps that God orders for you is the best way to go in your life, though it may not at all be the easy way to go in your life. So long-suffering, kindness, and goodness work themselves out in our lives. So let me go to what I call forward fruit. I guess I'm, I'm calling it this because I had no other direction to go. <laughs> no, I, I could have gone upward, but I think forward in, in the sense that now where are we going from here? And where does this fruit take us? And I think that's what these words describe us. Again, in the old version, you just have the word faith, and in the new, you have faithfulness. But again, just as agape love is mentioned 350 times in the New Testament, the word faith in its various forms, 350 times. Love and faith. What solid rocks they are in our lives. So the New Testament has often the faith with that definite article. That means this belief that we have, this theology, this Christianity is the faith. Stand fast in the faith. But I think here it's rather your faith. I mean, your belief in that faith. Your working out of that faith. It's your personal application, if you will. You walk by faith, not by sight. You take the, the things of God that have come to you and what he teaches you and what God says, and you take those by faith. Do you believe God created this world? You might be in the minority in this world that we live in, but God said it. Don't ask me how. I just know that he did it, and he did it in six days. Uh, I take that by faith. If God says that I walk a certain way, life will be better for me, I want to walk that way. That's walking by faith. This verse I, I read often in 1 Timothy 1.19, I think is interesting. He says, holding faith, Paul's writing to Timothy, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck in both the older and new versions. Shipwreck. Without faith, without walking in this faith that you have, this Christianity that you love, without you doing it, you'll be shipwreck. I think, you know, in those old vessels with those big steering wheels that they had on, on those sailing vessels and that little rudder behind them at the back of the ship, uh, somebody was, was taught how to steer this thing. And, and you need to do this when the waves come up and you need to be going in this direction and all of those things about how to steer a vessel. Uh, and maybe someone will say, you know, well, I think I can do it a better way. Oh, that's no problem. I know how to steer this. And they, and they wreck the ship. 
You need to know how to walk in your faith. I thought of this illustration. I think I have a minute to tell you. But uh, how many times have you experienced something initial in your life where somebody says, you know, you need to do it this way, and you keep saying, oh, no, I can, I can do it a better way. I know how this, and it crashes in your life, remember? When we first moved to Colorado way back in the early 80s, I had never water or snow skied before. I water skied all my life, but never had snow skied. And so I, I went on this trip actually with a group of, with a church group, and I was their speaker. They were going to ski for two or three days, and I was the speaker for their evening sessions. So they paid for my way to ski at Vail, no doubt. Wow. And uh, so I got to learn to ski. And so this guy was 65 years old or something like that, and he was a ski instructor. And so here we are, all of us beginners, and we're on this little downhill slope, like from, from me to about the fourth or third uh, row out here, just a little short hill. And he says, now here's how you have to turn on a ski. When you, if you want to turn left, you have to do it like this. If you're going to turn right, you have to do it like this. So I'm going to have you ski down toward me, and I'm going to go this way with my hand, or I'm going to go this way. You turn that way. And he says, now, if you, if you don't make it, I'll put you over here with the beginners, and if you do know how to, I'll put you over here with more advanced. I said to myself, that's a piece of cake. I've been on water skis all my life. <laughs> you just lean into the water ski, you know, and push against the water. No problem. I'll get this. So I get up there, you know, and he says, okay, come this way. And I start going toward him, and he goes like this, and I go, whop, over to <laughs> immediately fall on my on my side he says you go over here with the beginners <laughs> which I did and it was good for me to go there <laughs> I found out with water skis you ski on the inside edge with snow skis you turn actually on the outside edge and turn the other way it's kind of a weird kind of thing do you know what how many how many things in our life does God say let me teach you how to turn let me teach you how to steer let me teach you how to walk. And we say, oh, I, I know how to do it. I know how to do it better than that. And we end up shipwrecked. We end up crashed at the bottom of the hill. So remember that uh, and be faithful in your walk. And then uh, gentleness. Or some you might have the word meekness, 16 times this word. It's humility. It's power under control, if you will. Numbers 12 says about Moses. Now, the man Moses was very meek above all men that were on the face of the earth. Meekness. I didn't think Charlton Heston looked so meek in the, in the Ten Commandments when I saw it, but no, the real Moses was meek. And Matthew describes Jesus saying, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, you'll find rest to your souls. Even Paul said, let me beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And even Paul said, when I come, shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? So some of the greatest men, of course, the Lord himself that walked on this earth were, were men of, me, of meekness. Excuse me. You know, I, I think of all nine words, this is the most difficult. And it is because you and I have a nature that fights against this. Our nature comes out of those words in verses 19, 20, and 21. 
And those are anything but meek. Those things are in us too. And we just don't like to be meek. We don't like to be seen as meek. It, to us, it seems like weak instead of weakness instead of meekness. But meekness or gentleness is power under control. We need to understand that. And then one last one is self-control. Or you have the word temperance. Not a very common word, only used six times in the New Testament. But, of course, it means a restraining of passions and appetites. All of those passions and appetites from verse 19 to 21 are in you. And so have temperance. Have self-control. Do you know, folks, that you are accountable only for you? I mean by that, that when God says, do not do these things, you yourself don't have to do those things. And when God says, do these things, you yourself can do those. And if you don't do those or you do do these over here, it's on you and no one else. No one can make you do what you're not supposed to do. No one can keep you from doing the things that you should do. Oh, they may hurt you. <laughs> they may do something to you, but they can't make you do it. It's, it's on you. You are accountable to you. That's why the, in Romans chapter 6, you are dead to sin and alive unto God. You don't have to do that sin, but you are alive unto God. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to righteousness. Haven't you been learning that in the book of Romans? You're a slave to God, and if he asks you to do something, you have every ability to do it. I always remember my dad, who taught school all of his life in a university, and when he retired, he said, on the first day of my retirement, he said, he said, you know what? I don't have to do anything today. <laughs> I always remember that word. First day of retirement. I don't have to do anything today. <laughs> I thought of that expression when I thought of this word temperance. I don't have to do anything the world tells me to do. I may, and I may stumble in that, but I don't have to. And no one can keep me from doing any of these nine words that God says to do. It's on me. It's up to me to do that. So here are my nine commandments, if you will, uh, of the New Testament. Here's my, my constitution. Here's my commitment to the Christian life and to my Savior. And let me end with this one verse back to that list of 2 Peter in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. He gives his list. Remember I said, and, and love is at the end of that list, is the, the top the apex of all of those things. And then Peter says this, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these things are in you and they abound, you will not be unfruitful. You will be fruitful. You will have these things showing in your life and in the knowledge and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust that you will do that. Stand now with me, if you will. Thank you for this time to read these words and think about these words individually. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask him 
to, to make these things real in my life, to, to show them out from the Spirit outward in my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these kinds of lists. Thank you for uh, many times in your word where you tell us these things, the negative things that we should not do, the positive things that we need to be doing. But, Father, we thank you that we have the Spirit of God. They're the fruit of the, of the Spirit inside us, and he produces them through us. And, Father, we thank you for that, or, or we wouldn't have them at all. So, Father, we, we humbly ask you in both of these things that we have read, to keep us from those things that are displeasing to you. We don't need to do those. We're dead to that sin. And then, Father, help us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe there's a particular one that someone is struggling with. Maybe, maybe a few of these that seem to be very difficult for someone. Help that person, Father, to be able to produce that, to see what you want for them in this world. And then, Father, may it show the love of Jesus Christ that comes out of our hearts for a lost and dying world. And may we show the fruit of the Spirit to this world that needs it so badly. So speak to our hearts in the way that we need. Have your will and your way in our lives, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing a song of invitation, of course, and we're singing this to remind ourselves of what we've read. So as we sing, remember those things. I'm here at the front as we sing or even after our service is closed. If you need some help, then you come and see me, and let's get that taken care of. Ken will come and lead us in a song.